According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah this morning, and we have a kind of an easy week in Jeremiah chapter 24. This is, I think, the second shortest of all the chapters in Jeremiah, having uh, taken on the challenge to do a chapter of Isaiah every week for 66 weeks, and having succeeded that, now emboldened to move on to do a chapter of Jeremiah every Sunday for 52 straight Sundays. So far, the Lord has provided. Last week, I was not so certain, but uh, we got through it. Last week, I actually kind of had a, a, a security blanket, because knowing that this week was coming up, and we might spill over to this week, and... Uh, having uh, only 10 verses to to cover here. So anyway, let's open with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. 10 verses may go pretty quickly. We might be done in 15 minutes, and we can go uh, beat the Baptists over at Luby's or something. All right, shall we pray? Almighty Father, this is our privilege, our, our grace provision, Father, that you have supplied I thank you for the living and abiding word of God and the joy that it is for us to assemble together with our brothers and our sisters and to fellowship in your truth, to echo your truth, to fellowship in all things, Father. I thank you for Jeremiah and uh, the tough days in which he ministered and his faithfulness in the face of so much opposition. Father, I pray that we would be equipped as you are equipping us through these uh, two prophets, Isaiah and now Jeremiah, Father, and and uh, whatever our nation has in store, whatever we're looking forward to, whatever the outcome of the election and in the coming years, Father, uh, we know that the hope of our nation is not political, it's not economic, it's not military. Father, the hope of our nation is your children, uh, a remnant of believers that are growing in the truth. And uh, so I pray on this day that you would open our eyes to truth and equip us that which is pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty, let's take a look at it here and uh, remind ourselves how simple the Word of God is supposed to be. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah, with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me Behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. So Jeremiah is given a vision. Specifically, he's being given this vision after the 597 captivity. Remember, they were taken away in three different waves. The earliest was hostages that were taken in 605, Daniel and his friends. And there were hostages taken from the uh, royal family of of, uh, David, from the the princes of Judah. And uh, those hostages were taken in 605. Then a few years later, in 597, another wave was taken away, a much larger wave. 10,000 captives were taken. And this happens here. And it's sometime after that, before 586, before the final destruction of of Jerusalem that comes at the end of this book. And so we can uh, somewhat pinpoint it, not with a a great deal of precision, but he's shown a vision, and there's there's two baskets of figs that are presented before the temple. One basket had, verse 2, one basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. 
And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs. (laughs) The good figs are very good, and the bad figs are very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. And And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. And so a message is going to come. We're going to start with the vision, and then we have the message that comes from the vision. All right? And it's simple. I mean, it, 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 it's not complicated. You don't have to read Hebrew. You can, you can read the English translation. And this message just lays out, I think, in a very clear fashion. But we start, I want to highlight a couple of things here in verses 1 through 3. The Lord makes sure that Jeremiah sees what he's looking at. The Lord makes sure that Jeremiah sees what he's looking at. And I think that's huge. I think it's, it's a good demonstration of how God cares for how we study and how we look at his word and how we see what we should see. We see what we are looking at. And all too often I think we look at things and we don't see what we're supposed to see there. And uh, God might say something and we don't hear what we're supposed to hear. We're going through a, a test or a circumstance and we are not looking at what we're supposed to be looking at. Instead, we're all wrapped up in our uh, how unpleasant the testing is and we immediately go to a prayer mode to say, take this test away. And we, we think that the purpose for the test is to remove the test and that's not right. The purpose for the test is to teach us what we can't learn any other way and to prepare us for what's coming up in additional realms of ministry and testing. And so, uh, to me, this is a, a marvelous pattern, and one that it repeats several times throughout the Old Testament, and, and I think it's a, a good method of instruction to use with children, to, make it, to use with adults even, in any capacity. We look at a verse and say, all right, now what do you see there? And make sure, before we move on to the next verse, that the student that you're, you're showing them, that they see what they need to see. Uh, before we before we can move on. The vision comes after the 597 B.C. captivity of the craftsmen and smiths. In fact, there was uh, more groups than just craftsmen and smiths. There were nobles, leading citizens, princes, priests. Uh, this was the captivity in which Ezekiel was taken away. Ezekiel was removed out of a priestly family and taken into captivity. Never does get to serve as a priest, uh, but he does serve as a prophet in uh, in his captivity. If you want more information on this, uh, I recommend uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 24 gives uh, more of the historical narrative on it. Uh, It's going to come back, though, in subsequent chapters, uh, not only here uh, in chapter 24, but we have the expression again in chapter 27 and verse 20, as well as 29 and verse 2. And each time this statement is made, it's made like the... um, the productive people are the ones that are gone. The skilled people, the, um, well, let's just see the descriptions for what they are. In, in 24.1, uh, it's craftsmen and smiths, right? With the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem. In chapter 27, in verse 20, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, um, you know, he took a lot of plunder and he left a few things. 
In chapter 27, in verse 19, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the stands, and concerning the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Babylon, a king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles, there's the term nobles, of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, And so these would be the princes, tribal princes, elders uh, in that capacity, those of the royal family of David in, uh, in the, the Davidic line. That's how they're described there. Uh, over in chapter 29, verse 2, uh, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother. The court officials, there's a new term, court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. And so I think in all three of these passages, the emphasis comes down to um, lamenting or missing the, uh, the, uh, the prime businessmen of the community or the, the productive people, the skilled people of the community. And this gets reflected as well in 2 Kings chapter 24, where not only does it talk about who was taken, but it talks about who was left. And in 2 Kings, it's not flattering when it talks about the, uh, the dregs who were left behind. 2 Kings 24, verses 12 through 16. And this is more of the historical narrative. Those other verses were really more in passing, just setting a time context for a particular message that was given or a particular uh, ministry of Jeremiah's in those, in those uh, chapters. 2 Kings 24, you've got the reign of Jehoiakim, the reign of Jehoiachin, and uh, as it's described here, uh, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. That's uh, in verse 8 of chapter 24. He reigned uh, three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And she must have been significant in the way that she's singled out in Jeremiah and in other, other passages. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And here's the description. Jehoiachin is the same guy, by the way. Jehoiachin is Jeconiah, is Caniah, same king with different names. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. That would be Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, treasures of the king's house, cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. And he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor. The Gabor HaChail we've studied in other uh, series. 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen, and all the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. That's who he leaves behind. That's who Zedekiah has to reign over between 597 and 586, the 11-year reign of Zedekiah. So he led Jehoiakim away into exile into Babylon, also the king's mother and the king's wives, and his officials and the leading men of the land. He led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war, 
And these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. And then Uncle Mataniah, Uncle Matt, he gets, uh, he gets renamed, he gets promoted, given the name Zedekiah, and he becomes the, uh, the final king there of Judah. But he's not in the line of Christ. See, that's important. Uh, Jeconiah, the one that's taken to captivity, he's the one that's in the line of Christ. All right, and yet not, which we saw last week with the curse of Jeconiah. He's in the legal line of Christ, not in the physical line of Christ with respect to the, the uh, genealogies that are listed there. All right, so we have the context now for when this vision is delivered. Then we have the principle of patience. The Lord's patient instruction takes the time to verify the content. Taking the time to verify the content. Now, he doesn't use this method every time, but he does on certain occasions. He does so specifically as needed, depending upon the content or the prophet that's involved. I, 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 I'm not saying that Jeremiah and Amos and Zechariah are kind of knuckleheads or, you know, that they're uh, a little bit slow on the uptake. But these are the examples that we have where God very patiently shows him a vision and says, all right, now what do you see? And makes them repeat it back. See, and and it's it's a like I say we can we do the same thing today. And I've done it in Sunday school. I've done it. I've done it in the adult class. I've done it where I ask the students now repeat back after me. You know, or put it in your own words. What do you think this is talking about? Uh, we even had an earlier example of this back in Jeremiah chapter one when we uh, started this series. And say I don't remember that. That was twenty three weeks ago. Actually, longer. I missed a couple Sundays. But Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And he said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Well, why did he say that? Because that's what he was shown. He was shown the rod of an almond tree. And God now is making clear that he sees what he's looking at and that he understands it. And the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And we taught, of course, the play on words there, the almond, the almond tree, and the Hebrew word for that speaks of being awake, being watchful, being alert. And that uh, visual aid was designed to teach the principle of being alert. Comes back again um, in uh, this chapter, chapter 24. What are you looking at, Jeremiah? And I see two baskets of figs. Boom, there you go. All right, that's what you're supposed to see. And that the good good figs are the best you've ever eaten, and the bad figs uh, you don't want to eat because they are the worst you, you might think about eating, uh, as, uh, as terrible as they are. If you want more illustrations of this, um, Amos gives us one. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And I don't mind turning here because we've got plenty of time. Amos chapter 7. Verses 7 through 9. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. High places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. And I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And so we see the, uh, the use of it there. Similar thing in the next chapter over in chapter 8. Thus the Lord showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. <laughs> All right. You see, we're, we're chuckling, but 
Consider, I mean, this is, this is beautiful. This is sweet. This is simple. This is how patient the Lord is. And, and it's not designed to be complicated. God's not tricking us. If he's showing us something, we should plainly see what he's showing us. I think, I think you know, we're, we, 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 we live in this fallen world. We live in a, in a twisted culture. We're used to looking for the fine print or the, or the trap or, or what's, the, what's the rest of the story kind of a thing. We don't have to do that with the Lord. If he's showing us something, he's showing it to us right out there. And uh, we ought to be, in our prayer life, we ought to be just as blunt as, as these guys are. Say, Lord, I'm looking at a basket of summer fruit. What's this about? <laughs> Why am I looking at a basket of summer fruit? What's the content? What's the teaching? What, what's my application? And so uh, the Lord said to me, very good. That's a basket of summer fruit. The end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And the songs of the place will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Anyway, it's not a happy message. Zechariah, three times, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, we get Zechariah that experiences this. Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the left side. Look at the detail. Look at it. I mean, there's specifics here. There's precision in what he's seeing, and he should be paying attention to this detail. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? All right, if you're not sure what you're looking at, go to him and ask. You know, if you lack wisdom, go to him and ask. He gives to all generously without reproach. He's not going to call you a dummy for asking questions. You're, you're looking at it, and you want to know what, it, what it's about. So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord is Zerubbabel. Remember Zerubbabel? Remember the signet ring? Remember how uh, fondly I spoke of Zerubbabel? He's a, he's a hero to me. I think uh, Zerubbabel is a very humble man that uh, served as a Persian governor, even though he was entitled to the Davidic throne. And so he uh, has a Zerubbabel message here. Uh, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And you have a, a tremendous message of comfort and a message of encouragement here. Relax. Don't think it's all about you. God will be at work, and he will provide. And uh, we have uh, promise here. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Chapter 5, there's a scroll. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. Well, there's something you don't see every day. <laughs> okay? There's a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. But again, there's detail. And he said, and uh, its length is 20 cubits. Its width is 10 cubits. Now, how did Zechariah know that? You know, you talk about, what, calibrated eyeballs or whatever. I mean, he's, he's seeing that scroll. And uh, he's got a good judge of uh, dimensions, evidently. 
And he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. And uh, there's a message that follows there in uh, verses 1 through 11. Not to read the entire chapter to you here this morning. Uh, Over to chapter 6. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. And uh, a lot of description here. The first chariot was red horses, the second chariot black horses, third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? And it's interesting, This is uh, he doesn't get the same reply he got in the previous chapter with, well, don't you know? And then he explains it. Here he just comes right with the explanation. And the angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. And uh, a longer message that goes there where they're commanded to uh, patrol the earth and report back. So here's... I think a, a, a fascinating method of, of teaching and one that hopefully we can make use of in our own prayer life, in our own testing. Uh, if, if I'm faced with whatever, a health test, a financial test, an employment test, a people test, or whatever it might be. And just stop and ask, Lord, what am I looking at? <laughs> yeah, Lord, uh, are these good figs or bad figs? What am I looking at? What is the purpose for this? Because he wants me to know his will. He wants me to know what it is that he's assigned this for. And, and we're, are, are we or are we not uh, fellow workers with God the Father? Are we or are we not yoked together with Jesus Christ? And so if he has, if he has placed something in our life, we better ask, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? And what am I supposed to be seeing in this test? And, and, and learn from that test and thank him for it. And then get out of the mode of immediately, of immediately just jumping to the take it away prayers because I don't like it. <laughs> okay, uh, you know whatever. You know here's the medical diagnosis. Heal that. You know here's the here's the financial shortfall. Uh, more money. Okay. Here's the employment need. Uh, new job. Whatever it might be. We, we just have these triggers. And here's a test. And here's our answer. So Lord, make our answer happen. All right? And that's not what prayer is supposed to be. Whatever that test is, it's an assignment. And I notice we never adopt those kind of prayers with the good stuff God gives us. Right? God, God brings a gracious provision, a beautiful woman that's going to be your helpmate, and, and you don't respond to that uh, and say, Lord, take it away. Right? Make it stop. Right? We never have those kind of prayers with the good stuff God gives us. Why do we have those kind of prayers with the bad stuff that God gives us to work together for good, to glorify His Son, to build us up in our faith? Say, as Job told Mrs. Job, should we accept good from God and not adversity? It's all from Him, and if it's not good, it works together for good, and we should thank Him for it. And we should be like these prophets. We should be seeing what we're looking at. And and if we don't, we go to him in prayer and we ask, Father, what am I? I'm not seeing it here, Father. What should I be seeing? All right, because the sooner I see it, then the test can go away. <laughs> now, that's not going to keep a test going longer than its purpose. It's not longer than it needs to. Once, once we learn this lesson, I, I tell you, you're much better learning the lesson now instead of doing the retest or the re-retest or the re-re-retest because God's faithful. He'll let you do the test over and over and over again. Go ahead and pass it now. Pass the test now to equip you for the next one. Because the next one's harder anyway. All right. 
Now, we talk about good figs, we talk about bad figs. The good figs were very good, and you might expect. Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift comes down from above. What God supplies is going to be good. And what Satan supplies as an alternative, is, even if it is supposed to be good, is not. What we come up in our own human effort as an alternative is not. All these euphemisms the world offers like um, alternative. Okay, It's an alternative lifestyle. It, it's, it's wrong. It's not alternative. It's sin. Anything that's alternative is not by God's divine design. And, and more so, if you, if you ever want to study it out, the, the directive will of God, the permissive will of God, you know, I would much rather be in the directive will of God than the permissive will of God. Why do I want to go there? In what he's letting me do? I'd, I'd much rather be in what he is directing me to do, what he's commanding me to do, staying in the, in the heart of his will, staying in the center of his will. So as we look at these good figs then, um, back to Jeremiah 24, verses 4 through 7. And here's the message. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good. I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me. Notice, they don't have it yet, but they will, because he will. All right, Because of everything he's going to do on their behalf. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. We have here a prophetic message, an eschatological message, by the way. It, it, it has a, maybe a short fulfillment, if you think of it as, as a short fulfillment in, uh, when they return from their 70-year captivity. But ultimately, this is a promise that looks ahead to Jesus Christ. It looks ahead to Second Advent. It looks ahead to the millennium when he does give them this new heart. You know, They didn't have that new heart when Zerubbabel brought them back or Ezra or Nehemiah. In the, in the, there were three waves of, of returnings just as there were three waves of, of exile. And, and then when they came back under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, um, there was no clean heart, new heart. There was a lot of rebellion. They had married a lot of foreign women. They had to put those wives away. They had uh, neglected the temple while they're building their own houses and their own farms. They had a lot of other um, issues where they weren't obedient. That's why Haggai gets written and, and Zechariah gets written, to chew them out for not finishing the temple sooner. And so this new heart, this clean heart, we have an eschatological message here. And one, by the way, if, if we were doing this verse by verse instead of chapter by chapter, you want to know how long we would stay in this prophecy right here? We'd be here a while because there's a lot to, to unfold. The good figs in the vision represent the captives in Babylon. And uh, completely backwards from how some people were taking it. Matter of fact, the people that were left behind in Jerusalem... They thought they were the choice ones. They thought they were the good figs. They thought, wow, look at us. You know, all the, God hated those people, took those all away into captivity. Look at us. We're the, God rescued us. Yay, us. Okay? Not recognizing that God left them there for wrath. He left them there for judgment. So 
they had it backwards, absolutely backwards. The ones that were taken were the ones that God were rescuing. See, in, in some ways you could even view this, it's not foreshadowing, it's not typical, typical, but I think it illustrates the rapture. I believe in the tribulation when, when there's only unbelievers on this planet, the, day, the morning after the rapture when the Holy Spirit is gone as an indwelling influence and, and, and we have a planet populated by 100% unregenerate, I think that they're going to be so thrilled and fun and excited and, and jazzed about the restraint being lifted, about finally all those uh, judgmental haters being gone, all those primitive Bible thumpers, all those backwards-minded, you know, um, deplorables being gone. All right. They're going to they're gonna throw a party. See, because th- I think they're right to classify people as this or that, but they've got it backwards as far as the this and the that, as far as who God's providing for and who God's going to judge. All right. Speaking of deplorables, you realize what we're looking at here today? You realize this was written thousands of years ago? And by God's inspiration, by the Holy Spirit, you understand edible illustrations are valid analogies to represent refugees in foreign lands? All right? Don't get all offended and say, well, Skittles aren't people. Okay? Or get up in arms. This has been in the news for a week now or longer. You know, the whole thing about Skittles. And, you know, you're looking at a thing of Skittles, and if three of them are poison, would you, would you eat a handful of Skittles? And that's the illustration in a political ad in our, in our uh, time, right here. And they are all up in arms. You cannot use food to illustrate people. Well, tell that to the Lord, because when he wrote Jeremiah 24, he used figs, good figs, representing refugees in a foreign land. Bad figs, representing evil Jews that are about to be destroyed in Jerusalem. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of amusing. (laughs) Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, declares seven I wills on behalf of his covenant nation. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, declares seven I wills. Satan declared five I wills, and he was over five. Okay? None of them were fulfilled. He had this prideful, boastful exaltation of self. And we saw in Isaiah chapter 14 in the five I wills of Satan. All right? And he's 0 for 5. Yahweh has seven I wills right here in this message. And it's not pride, it's not arrogance, it's not self exaltation. It's all sacrificial love on behalf of his covenant people. And it's all about what he will do for their sake, what he will do for them to glorify His Son in their, in their experience, or to glorify His Son in their uh, deliverance. And this is why I say we would stop and we would take weeks to delineate each one of these and to, uh, to spell some of these things out. But take these and consider what these applications might be. I will regard as good. I will regard as good. And you realize we're dealing with doctrines 
of Old Testament and New Testament theology, doctrines that refer to uh, principles such as justification, imputation, the ledger that God keeps when he does not count trespasses against somebody, when he does impute righteousness to somebody's account. You realize that we ourselves are not righteous, but he credits it to us. What a glory. (laughs) I deserve the lake of fire. I should be in hell. But because my sins were imputed to Christ, his righteousness can be imputed to me, and it is imputed to me. It's imputed to each one of us when we trust in Christ for eternal life. This is one of the great blessings, the position, possession blessings, that it is reckoned to us as righteousness. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so God reckons, he regards as good. And this is entirely his choice to do. I will regard as good. Now this is on a national level, though not a personal individual level, so we want to be careful with that. But I will regard as good. When he's looking at, at, at Jerusalem of Jeconiah's day, it's not good. But he will regard Israel as good when he purifies them in the tribulation, when he brings the remnant through and when he delivers them at Armageddon and when he ushers them into the millennial kingdom. He will regard them as good when he brings them under the bond of the new covenant. He will regard them as good. Not only will he regard them as good, he will set his eyes on them for good. He will set his eyes on them for good. This is another idiom that we have even in modern English. I've got my eye on you. Okay? And you might have your eye on somebody for good reasons, hopefully. Or you you might have your eye on someone for bad reasons harmful reasons, okay? Maybe there's somebody that's suspicious, so you keep an eye out on them. Or you have your eye over them in in love, okay? And uh, Scripture tells us that Israel is the apple of Yahweh's eye, that his eye is on them with fondness. His eye is on them with a tenderness and and an affection. His eye, (laughs) like um, Randy and Jeannie and their triplet grandsons, you know? Did you see them this morning? You know, and you just, you, your eye is on them, and you know, man, this is, this is precious right here. This is, this is a treasure. And, and Yahweh will have his eye on Jerusalem, on Israel, on the Jewish people, for their good. For their good, okay? He has plans for them, plans for their blessing, not for calamity. And we're going to have that coming up in, I think, chapter 29. We've got the, uh, the promise there. People today are claiming it as if it's applicable to the United States. All right, It's not. It's applicable to Israel in their restoration in the second advent. I will bring them again to this land. I will bring them again to this land. And uh, as far as the justice of God is concerned and the cycles of discipline, if you study those from Leviticus 26, um, a Gentile nation can be destroyed, can be removed, and never has any promise of ever being restored ever again. Israel has eternal promises. And so even when he takes them from their land, he must bring them back. He took them for 70 years into a Babylonian captivity, but he brought them back. He took them again in the Roman dispersion, 70 AD and onward. But as of 1949, they're back in the land. 48. 48. Okay before my time. 
I still should know. It was 1948 All right, that they were brought back to the land. I will bring them again to this land. That's a promise. That's an absolute promise. And so when our politicians decide to decide how they're going to divide up the land and give some of it to the, to the Arabs that want to kill the Jews, um, you think we're going to come into some judgment for that? Scripture says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. But I will bring them again to this land. It's also kind of a remarkable, I think, a uh, conviction for some folks that pursue replacement theology, they want to abscond with all the spiritual blessings of Israel, uh, but they kind of pick and choose. They want to take all the blessings, they ignore all the cursings, and also you notice uh, they they really have no drive to go live in the in the land of promise. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you really want to be a replacement theologian, then go live in the land of promise. But I notice no one really wants to do that. They're kind of fat, dumb, and happy right here. But the, you know, it's part of the package deal. They will be brought back to the land. I will build them up, edifying them as a nation. I will plant them, digging the roots deep, roots deep and establishing them. There's both a, a building metaphor and a plant metaphor, an agricultural metaphor in, uh, in this prophecy. Interestingly enough, we have the same thing in the New Testament. We have, uh, when, when Paul gives the doctrine of, of edification there in 1 Corinthians, he talks about uh, building up and he talks about planting when he talks about the, uh, the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. uses both construction and agricultural um, language to communicate that. I will give them a heart to know me. Obviously this didn't happen with the, the return from Babylon because when the Christ was born, most of them didn't know him. Only a small remnant knew him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who were called by his name. But you know what? In the second advent, they're going to know him. They're going to know him. They're going to look upon him whom they pierced. And they're going to call out. They're going to call out, save Lord. They're going to call out the Hosanna that they have to call out from Psalms. And they're going to call out, save Lord, save now. And he will come but only when they have the heart to know him. And I will be their God. I will be their Elohim, as it says here. So here's seven I wills. And I think these are extraordinary. And they're all um, unconditional. You'll note, uh, nothing here like uh, the law of Moses. Nothing here like, well, if you do this, then I'll bless you. If you do that, then I'll curse you. Okay? There's no, uh, they don't have to get the tribes up on the mountains and, and echo back and forth on the, the blessings and the cursings because the new covenant is entirely unconditional. 100% based on I will promises of Yahweh. And this is what Yahweh will do. This is what Yahweh will do. And it's an unconditional eternal promise that we'll learn more about when we get to chapter 31 because the new covenant to Israel is given by this prophet we're studying here uh, today. Ultimately, this uh, prophecy awaits an eschatological fulfillment in the second advent of Jesus Christ. I think it's useful. I would, I would recommend, by the way, um, going through this, also going through Daniel chapter 9 and seeing the purposes of God that must be achieved in those 70 weeks. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. And it starts to list things that have to be done during those 77s. And what we learn very quickly is that there's a break after the 69th seven, before the 70th seven. And once we understand that break, we see 
that those, the purpose clause of those things that have to be achieved, they all happen in that 70th seven. They all happen in the tribulation. All right? In uh, the return of Jesus Christ to conquer and to reign. So that becomes an important study as well. I think there's a tandem here to be found between this chapter and, and Daniel chapter 9. All right? A tandem we can't get into this morning. Now the bad, trigs, the bad figs were very bad. Verses 8 through 10. The bad figs were very bad. And this too, I think, speaks of many principles that we can apply. Aspects that we... Um, that, that uh, ought to go without saying, but our culture is totally confused issues. Um, we live in, a, in an age when the spirit of this age likes to take simple things and complicate them. They like to take absolute black and white issues and make them more gray areas and fuzzy. In fact, they, uh, it's, it's a method, it's, it's a tactic that they employ. I don't think it's accidental, I think it's by satanic design that in order to confuse things, they have to uh, blur blurred lines, okay? They have to blur um, distinctions between things. It can't be as simple as black and white. And they'll even castigate you and say, oh, you're too narrow-minded. You're, everything's just black and white with you. And they'll say, come on now, get, get more enlightened, get more sophisticated, understand there's nuance here and there's shades of, of understanding and whatever. And it's not quite so simple as uh, male and female, he created them. Okay? I mean, hello? <laughs> that, that's, I get that, that's easy. There's boys and there's girls. Male and female. But not these days. Oh my, these days... You know, what are they up to now, 25, 50? I mean, how many different options do you have, okay? And then there might be some that are biological and there's some that you want to be true or some that you think are true and whatever, okay? Used to be if you have a perception that does not conform to reality, we called that delusional, all right? It's not called that anymore. If you have a perception that does not conform to reality, it's no longer considered delusional, all right. <laughs> bad figs are very bad. And that's key. That's key. Because, see, the world would come along and say, well, it's not that bad. And why do you think it's so bad? Come on, there's some goodness in it. Oh, come on. Just have one. Try it. And it is so bad that even one is, is unthinkable. Look how rotten these things are. Really? You know? And, and so you've got, I mean, they're both baskets of figs. But these are, are the best you've ever had, like the first ripe figs. And then these, oh man, okay? And that's, and that's I, I use the dead cow illustration sometimes too. The nicest smell you've ever smelled has been dead cow. But it's dead cow on a grill. It's dead cow as it's, as it's cooking, as it's filling the house, as it's just, you're just anticipating, man, this is going to be good. All right? But dead cow in a ditch... That's been laying there, you know, in a, in a mud puddle for three weeks. That's not a good smell, all right. And and that's the difference. You got dead cow both ways. One's the best smell ever, and one's a horrible smell. And here's these figs. They're same. They're figs. Same same figs. Same bulls. But these are marvelous, and these are horrible. So the bad figs are very bad. 
But like, verse 8, but like the bad figs which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials. And isn't it interesting? Not only are we contrasting figs, but we're contrasting kings, political leaders. Because specifically, Jeconiah was named by name, and now Zedekiah is named by name. And I find this interesting. All right. Um, I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. See, sometimes remnant's not good. Not when uh, remnant needs to go. Not when God's relocating the remnant and preserving the, uh, preserving the uh, remnant elsewhere. The remnant that's left behind, they may be coming for judgment. That's the case here. So I will abandon uh, Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in the land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. I mean, who were Zedekiah's officials anyway? I mean, all the, all the real officials were taken. All the craftsmen, all the military men, all the princes, all the, you know, so who does he pick? He, all he's left with is the, the poor of the land. So he just, what, grabs somebody and says, hey, guess what? You know, you want to be uh, Secretary of Defense? <laughs> hey, you want to be Treasury Secretary? You know, FBI Director? What do you want to be? And so he starts to fill his cabinet with, with, with what? All right. I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and as a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I will scatter them. And so they become the object lesson for all the Gentile nations. If he does not spare Israel, what will, will he not spare? No, he's not going to spare the Gentile nations. All right. I will send the sword the famine and the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave to them and to their forefathers. And so the bad figs are very bad. By the way, the same message that Jeremiah is preaching, Ezekiel's preaching, maybe at the very same time, maybe, uh, you know, they didn't have satellite news coverage back then, but <laughs> maybe the Lord sends this message to Jeremiah to preach this in Jerusalem while at the same time, Ezekiel is over there in, in uh, Babylon, and he's preaching it over there. Possibly at the very same time, with frightening results. Ezekiel chapter 11. See, in Jeremiah's case, there's no indication that anyone's even listening to him. <laughs> there's no audience that's mentioned. There's no uh, response that's given. There's no context for anything that... Uh, that uh, most likely, if he preached it out loud, he's, uh, he's being ignored. It might simply be that he sees the figs, the Lord has this Q&A with him, he answers the Lord's questions, the Lord gives him the message, and then he just writes it down. And he doesn't preach it. But I suspect he preached it because Ezekiel preached it. And when we look at Ezekiel chapter 11, we have some, I think, some, some interesting... Um, Man, there's some fun things to consider here. Ezekiel chapter 11. We've got time for this. I'm glad it's a short chapter. Ezekiel 11. And uh, moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. Now, how does this work? What is happening here? Is, is this physical travel? Is this spiritual travel? 
What's happening in this? He's living in Babylon, but he travels through time and space. Uh, is it just a dream? Is he in an out-of-body experience? Is this, uh, is this like um, Ebenezer Scrooge being shown the, the ghost of Christmas past and Christmas future and whatever? Um, I suspect, you know, and it's not always clear. The Apostle John wondered this. Paul wondered this. The Apostle Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. So the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. Well, that's certainly a lot better than walking uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem. Just teleport or let the Spirit carry you there. And behold, there were 25 men at the entrance of the gate. Among them I saw Jazaniah, son of Azar, and Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. And I suspect these were some of the, the, the dregs that became leaders in the Zedekiah administration. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in the city, who say the time is not, is not near to build houses. This city is the pot and we are the flesh. Now you see, this is where they have it backwards. They think we're hot stuff. We're the good guys. This city is the pot and we're the meat. Now, as far as Proverbs go, um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't go with that one. But okay, that's, that's the one they went with. All right, the city's the pot and we're the meat. Well, but meat gets cooked and meat gets eaten. And I don't know if I want to be meat in the pot. Okay? I want to eat the meat from the pot, but I don't want to be the meat in the pot. But they picked this as their metaphor. And, and while there's captives in Babylon, here's these stragglers, the, the poorest of the land. Here's, here's the, these folks that are slated for judgment in rebellion against the will of God. And they're singing songs about how great they are. They're celebrating how great they are. Yea, us. All right? While castigating those others as being deplorables, if you will. So, um, here's what they say. Uh, This city is the pot, and we are the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them, son of man, prophesy. And so the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me. He said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, so you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. Now, it's it's hard to imagine. If he's there out of body, how do they hear him preach? Or do they hear him preach? But he's preaching to them. (laughs) You know, if all of a sudden a ghost shows up or a spirit shows up or boom, here he is and he's preaching at you and he knows what you're thinking. And get my attention. Okay. For I know your thoughts. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of the city are are the flesh, and this city is the pot, but I will bring you out of it. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares, and I will bring you out of the midst of the city and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgment against you. See, what's interesting, the ones that stay in the pot are meat to be cooked. The ones that come out... God delivers them. That's his rescue. So uh, they have it backwards. And uh, anyway, it goes on down. Um, And look at the response here. Look at verse 13. Now it came about as I prophesied that Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. (laughs) See, frightening results. Can you imagine? 
That's never happened to me. I've been preaching and seen people walk out, but I've never been preaching and watched someone just drop dead right there in the middle of class. Not sure what I would do. All right. But this is the response. So is he in body? Is he out of body? Is he there just in the spirit? Is he, can they hear him preaching? Or is he just preaching as what the Lord's speaking, recording it in scripture, and Pelatiah drops dead? Yeah? Don't know. But then he comes back. <clears throat> then he comes back. And um, so the word of the Lord comes to him in another message there in verse 14 to reassure the captives that they're okay, that God's watching over them. And uh, he's going to rescue them. He's going to bring them back. You'll notice um, verse 19, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So we have a, a prophecy here that's, again, Second Advent. It's, it refers to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, very much in agreement with what uh, Isaiah is saying, or what uh, Jeremiah is saying in our chapter today. Very much what the new covenant promises in Jeremiah 31, 31. I will create in them a new heart. And uh, they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Old Testament Israel never kept the law, couldn't keep the law. Millennial Israel will. Millennial Israel will keep kingdom law. And kingdom law is tougher than Mosaic law ever was. But they will have this new heart created within them. And there's some fascinating prophecies about how he works in them to fulfill these things. All right, then the return flight. Uh, Ezekiel eleven twenty two. I wish I could fly like this. Wouldn't that be fun? You know, probably no jet lag, I would expect. No TSA lines and all the other hassles of airfare. Um, the cherubim lifted up their wings uh, with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Oh, this is interesting. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. You know, Jeremiah never sees this, but Ezekiel does. While he's in town, while he's there, while he's preaching, while these guys are dropping dead, he's there, and what does he see? He watches the Shekinah glory depart from the temple. Isn't that something? And where does it go? Out the eastern gate, through the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, up the hill to the Mount of Olives, to the launching pad, the same place that Jesus departed from, same place Jesus will return the mountain to the east. And he watches the glory depart. And you know, the, the, the amazing thing is uh, Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple. The, the ark is taken and disappears from human history. Uh, all these other things are happening. They come back from captivity. They rebuild the temple. But the Shekinah glory never returns. There was never again a Shekinah glory in the second temple. Ever. Because something greater than the Shekinah comes in the birth of Jesus. And it's, uh, it's really an interesting thing to stop and consider. So Ezekiel sees this. And then once uh, the Shekinah takes its departure, then Ezekiel takes his departure. So the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision. That's why I think it was out of body. Brings me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So the vision that I had seen left me. I think all of this was... In a dream. All of this was an out-of-body experience. And he's plunked back into his own body back there in Chaldea. 
which is another name for Babylon, by the way. It's the older name. It's the tribal area. It's the very region, region from which Abraham came. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Okay? And so the, I think the selection of Chaldeans there to be the, the place of their exile is, is uh, noteworthy. So he comes back to his body, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. He gets to report back. Okay, this is far better than satellite reporting and Fox News and anything else. All right. So Jeremiah is preaching chapter 24, maybe, at the same time that Ezekiel is preaching chapter 11. I find this interesting, how the, the, the remnant left behind thought that they were something. The remnant left behind thought that they were just the, the greatest things in the world, and, and it was backwards. They were the rotten figs. They were the ones slated for destruction. It's the captives that are preserved by the Lord. Not only Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but also Jesus. And Jesus will also stress the contrast of good fruit and bad fruit. He preaches it in Matthew chapter 7, part of his kingdom message. Jesus will stress the contrast of good fruit and bad fruit as the production of good trees and bad trees. Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 20. And I think we're familiar with this, Matthew chapter 7. And thankfully, of course, we are good trees by grace through faith. We are able to bear good fruit because He, by grace, makes us into good trees. Again, that's justification. (laughs) That's a grace provision by being saved. We didn't earn this, didn't deserve this. But we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So every tree, every good tree, this is part of a larger message here. Verse 15, beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so they're acting like they belong with you, but they don't. They're not real sheep. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And this is the message our Lord delivers here. All right. Well, like I say, it's an easy chapter. Next week, we'll come back in chapter 25, and we get the promise of the 70 weeks. And we've got a lot of work to do in that chapter. And so... uh, Pray hard. (laughs) Pray we can get through in a single Sunday. Some of these are easier and some of these are not so easy. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the simplicity of teaching methods on occasion, Father, that as it's called for, you just lay it out there and ask, what do you see? What are you looking at? And, uh, and Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for different styles and different methods and different uh, degrees, length and width and height and depth. Father, I thank you for the patterns that we have here. We have in-depth teaching and we, and that are verse by verse, word by word. And then we have other classes such as this one, it's chapter by chapter, Sunday by Sunday. And Father, I just rejoice that in all things, you're the one that's our teacher. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens the eyes of our understanding. And I ask that you would do so on this day. Open the eyes of our understanding and make these things clear to each one of us that we might make our personal applications in bearing good fruit that we might identify your work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. Father, uh, again, this is uh, a thrill and a blessing, and I thank you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.